Welcome to the sermon podcast for Restoration Nazarene Church, where we encourage you to be the gospel today so that you can share the gospel tomorrow. Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to see all of you. I know several of you have been traveling uh, recently, so it's good to see all of you back here today. Uh, this week, I was, I was at a um, high school graduation and some of you were, were there with me. We were celebrating Caden, um, and Caden's not here today, but we are celebrating him quite a bit for, for his graduation. And, and we were at this graduation, and while we were there, um, they, they had a whole bunch of students come and speak like they do, the student council and everybody. And there's this one kid, um, I guess he was probably an adult now. Once you graduate, you're probably 18, but he's a kid. So he walked up and he, he goes up there and he starts talking. And then all of a sudden he starts slipping in these mentions about God. And I was sitting there, and there was probably a good 2,000-plus people here. I think I counted about 500 graduates, and I couldn't tell you how many people were filling this Cardinal Stadium. But, but this kid was up there, and he kept mentioning these little, these little things about, about how God blessed them, about how God got them through their high school journey. And then he starts quoting Old Testament scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11, of course. Um, and and he, he starts going through, and, and, and I, I started thinking about, how, how bold that kid was. And, and would I do that if I were in high school? I mean, you, you know all these people and, and now you're starting to bring God into the schools, which that can become a bit risky. And, and then I started to, to wonder if, if, if what he was saying, how many people actually believed what he was saying. And his message was, was that God had been with them throughout their, their entire time at high school and that God would continue to be with them wherever they went. And I started thinking, and of course, there were, there were those that, that were cheering behind us, every mention of God that there was, which was great, gave me chills. But then I started thinking about all the other people that don't believe in God. And I started to wonder, like, how many people there actually believe that number one, God is real, but then number two, that God has actually been there that entire time with them because their high school journey was not easy. They had COVID right in the middle and high school by itself is not easy. And sometimes it can be hard to see God in it. Sometimes it can be hard to trust in God's timing of things when it doesn't make sense for us. And sometimes in life, it's really difficult to even see God at work, to see God moving behind the scenes, because sometimes in life, things just feel like they are falling apart all around us. And we just don't know what to do. And we wonder, God, where, where are you? Are you not here with us? Are you not in this? And this morning, we're looking at a story of, of a girl named Ruth. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, and, and the way that they responded to the things that happen in life and the ways that they had faith. And Ruth is a story in the Old Testament, and it takes up an entire book. And, and this, I think, is probably one of the shortest books in the entire Bible. Or let me rephrase that. In the entire Old Testament, it's only four chapters long. I'm sure you could read it in about 20 minutes. It's a very short story. And before we get into this story, 
There's a few things that I want you to know because they talk about things that, that don't quite make sense to, to me or at least a lot of us. And I grew up a little bit near farmland. And so I kind of have an idea of what farm life was like in harvest, but I wasn't really in all of that. And so they start talking about all these different harvest festivals and things that, that I didn't fully understand. And so I want to walk through and make sure that we understand the background of what's going on because it matters for this story. But I want to even go farther back and walk through kind of the story in a nutshell of, of God's creation, of God's people. Because we start at the beginning, and I'm starting after Noah, after the flood, about how, how we talked about how God made a, a promise to, to Abraham. As, as humanity began to grow, Abraham, through his faith, God made a covenant, a promise that through Abraham and his kids and his kids' kids and so forth, God would create this giant nation that would be blessed that we call the Israelite nation. But then this nation, when God delivers on his promise, this nation gets created and things are good for a while, but then the entire nation falls into slavery to Egypt. And then he sends, God sends Moses. And Moses goes and saves all the Israelites from slavery from Pharaoh. And they then go on this journey to this promised land that God promised them. And that's an extremely long journey that they go through. And then once they reach the promised land, God God then establishes different different leaders, different judges, um, and other like tribal leaders that would lead these people. And whenever a judge was good, things were fine. But often a judge would die, and then things would just go into complete chaos. It was just anarchy, no government system at all, just completely chaotic. And then sometimes there were bad judges that came in, and so things were, were crazy. And this, this period of judges went on for a long time. And so the Israelites and all their tribes, what they did is, is they separated themselves. And so they divided themselves into different tribes. We could think of them as like their own little nations. And so they divided Divided themselves and they each had their own judge, their own ruler over them. But again, it was just anarchy all the time. Nobody really knew what was going on. It was in complete chaos. And the story of Ruth comes in right at this moment. It, it's towards the end of here. And right after the time of Judges, all the Israelites then, then start pleading with God, asking for just one king to rule. They wanted a ruler. And so God eventually gives them King Saul, which then leads to King David. And this is important because Ruth is the bloodline of David. Ruth is the great grandmother of David who becomes king. And so this story is important to establish the bloodline of King David. And we know that through King David eventually came the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so Ruth is technically a great, great, great ancestor of Jesus, the Messiah himself. And so during this time, during the end of this judge's time, when things are in chaos, this is where we have the story of Ruth. And, and at the story in Ruth chapter one begins with a family. There's a family of four in chapter one, family of four that are living. And, and it's, they're, they're living in Bethlehem. 
And we think about Bethlehem and we think, oh, that's where Jesus was born. Funny coincidence, right? And so we have this family of four living in Bethlehem. But then there was this crazy famine that happened. And so there were no food. And so the family decides to leave. And this family of four, the dad, his name was Elimelech. I can't say that word. Elimelech is how I'm going to pronounce it this morning. And the mom is Naomi. And then they had two sons named Malon and Kilian. And so they're in Bethlehem, famine happens, they have no food, and so they decide that they are going to leave Bethlehem, and they are going to travel somewhere else. And they decide to travel to a place called Moab. Now, Moab was a big enemy to the Israelites, and they were kind of in a way related, but the Israelites didn't consider them actual citizens of Israel, and they were often fighting against each other. And so I want you to get this in your mind. This is a, a time frame of complete anarchy. I'm thinking like wild, wild west time frame here in the States. It is just completely chaos. And what they're doing is they're leaving from their safety of their town. They're going to an enemy location where anybody that recognizes them, who knows what could happen to them, but they have to because they don't have any food. So this family of four travels to this place called Moab. And then once they move, everything begins to fall apart for the mom, Naomi. This is Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Milan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Poor Naomi. She is now a widow, and she lost her two sons, and she is still in this foreign land. Luckily, she still has her two daughters-in-laws. Yeah, that made sense. Um, hopefully she likes them and there's a good relationship. But, but this is a big deal because in this time, in this culture, women, number one, women couldn't care for themselves. And so women, be especially a widow, if you wanted to be able to eat and have food, you had to find a man. But the second big deal is that they also believed in this time that all blessings and all punishments came from God. And so the fact that Naomi had suffered this way means that Naomi would have believed that she was being punished for something. That all the death in her life would have been caused directly by God. And I'm not saying that's true. I'm just telling you that's what she would have believed because that is what they thought. All blessings and all curses and punishments all came directly from God. And then to add to that, her two sons had been married for 10 years and they never had any children. And this is a big deal because 10 years without children in this time frame was considered a complete tragedy. And so now Naomi 
is now a widow, lost her husband. She went 10 years and now her sons cannot have kids. That's another huge tragedy for the entire family. Then both of her sons die. I mean, poor Naomi, right? And she had it so rough, but also for these, these two daughters-in-law, Ruth um, and, and Orpah, they couldn't have children and now they are widows and apparently unable to have kids. So who would ever want to touch them? Think about them being like this cursed family, the back sheep of the family. Nobody wants to come near them. Nobody would ever want to touch them. Who would want to marry them now if they're not going to be able to do what they were created to do? So they believe that women were created to basically just have kids and they couldn't do that. Again, I'm not stating that's true, but that is what they believed. Talk about a rough life. And Naomi was depressed. Listen to what she says in verse 20 of chapter one. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She was depressed. She was sad. And I don't blame her. She had a rough life. And when things get tough, it is hard to maintain a good, positive perspective. And if you think about it, perspective is really what matters. Because we can't always control the things that happen in life. All we can control is our perspective and how we respond. For example, Kylie's going to throw up a, a, a thing up on the screen uh, with some red stuff on there. So I want you to tell me, what do you see? Squares. Shapes, squares, circles. That's all you see? An oval. Orange. You see orange? Yeah, I guess it's kind of, it was meant to be red, but I suppose the orangish light or yellow. Who knows? It's a color. There are two colors up there, white. So those are what you see. What if I told you that, that you are all wrong? Yeah, Kurt's like, what? What if I told you that that's not what is actually up there? And what if I told you that this is what is actually up there is a cylinder. This was the biggest cylinder I could find in my house was this coffee cup. But, but I mean, look at this bottom circle. What do you see when you look straight on? You see a circle. What do you see when it's, when it's straight like this? You see a rectangle. And what do you see if you look at kind of like this angle? You begin to see like an oval, right? You see what I'm doing. Playing with the perspective changes the shape. In a 2D world, what you see up there is a circle. You see a rectangle and you see some type of an oval concept, but really it's all the same shape, right? It is all the exact same cylinder. Where I'm going with all of this is that, that your angle matters, your perspective matters for what you see. And so then I ask the question of, of, of who of you were right when you guessed it? Were any of you right? And I guess the answer depends on your perspective. If one person says, if, if I hold this out to Wayne and Wayne is staring at it, he's going to see a circle. But, but 
from over here, Ben, where he is looking at it, Ben is not going to see a circle. He's going to see more of the oval. And the two of them could probably argue about what they see and what is truth. I mean, have any of you been on social media lately and watched two people argue and they're saying, no, this is the truth. No, this is the truth. And I often stand back there and I say, you, you people realize you're talking about the exact same thing, just from a different perspective. You are both right at the exact same time, but yet people go to war over different perspectives when all you have to do is just move a little bit, be willing to adjust your perspective just a little bit. And my point is this, we can't always control what, what shape falls in front of us. We can't control that. We can't control what happens in life. All we can control is our perspective and the angle that we look and then our response to whatever happens. Naomi had it rough. The shape that, that was dropped in front of her was filled with death. She couldn't change the shape and, and her perspective of the, of the shape or the events that were happening caused her to be depressed. Her perspective led to the response of being depressed. And now I completely understand that depression is a clinical thing, that, that the chemicals in your brain, depression is a real thing. I'm not talking about a mental illness of depression. I'm just talking about a state of being sad because of some scenario that happens is the response. And, and so she being sad, she, she then hears while she's in this foreign location, she then hears that the famine is over. So then she says, okay, great. I don't have to be in this place that has brought me so much misfortune and, and, and pain and suffering. I can now travel back to my homeland. So then she goes to her two daughters-in-law and she tries to convince them to stay because they are from Moab by itself. And so they, she, she tries to convince them to stay. Orpah eventually does, but Ruth commits her life to Naomi. She pledges to her and she says, I am not going to leave you. And so then Naomi and Ruth travel back home to Bethlehem. And this is what it says, verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So here they come back. Now, there's another thing that's important. Israelites were not allowed to marry Moabite women. But yet Naomi's two sons did that. And so now Naomi is guilty for what her two sons did. And she's returning back home. And she's bringing a Moabite woman, a widow. And so who is Ruth ever going to find to marry? Because she's a Moabite. It's against the law for her to be able to even find somebody. And again, the culture said that, that women couldn't do anything. They couldn't provide for themselves. So their choice at this point is either to die or to find someone to care for them. And so then they come back at the end of the famine and it's the beginning of this, this barley harvest. And this is a big deal. 
Israel had this, had this law for when they harvest this food, that, that as they did this harvest, they were supposed to remember the ways that God cared for them when they were slaves in Egypt. And so the law, Stan's going to love this, the law in, in Israel, they, they required the farmers, the landowners, the farmers, the law said that the farmers, as they grow their food, they were not allowed to take the food on the edges of their own property and as they are going through and getting the food inside of their their property, if anything touches on the floor, they cannot pick it up. This was their way of caring for the the outsiders, the poor, the widows, the, the orphans, even foreigners, because they had a legal right to take from the outsides of the fields and they could follow behind the farmers and anything that fall on the ground, they're able to pick up for themselves. And this is the way that they would eat. Wouldn't that be fantastic for the government to tell you you can't take your own stuff, right? He's smiling over there. I didn't mean to go that direction, but I did. And, and so they were able to do these things, but, but this is also the time of the judges, so they didn't actually follow the laws because that, that would require, you know, government, but they had none, and so they didn't follow the laws, and this was the end of a famine, and so I, I want you to imagine two years ago when our society fought over toilet paper because they couldn't find toilet paper. Now imagine the same type of people fighting over food because they haven't had food in more than 10 years. The famine lasted 10 years. This is the first harvest after. Can you imagine how greedy people are going to be with their food? It's going to be complete chaos. And this is the time that they come back. And Ruth, this, this foreigner, this daughter-in-law from Moab knows that they need food in order to survive. And Ruth also knows that the law says that she being a widow and a foreigner could legally get the food on the outsides of the fields and follow behind people. However, she would also know the risk involved with doing that. Because everybody would be fighting over the food, not just because it's chaos, not just because it's, it's the end of the famine, but, but also because she's a woman. And so women were just property back then. And so men could do as they pleased. And she was now a widow. And she was potentially cursed because she couldn't have a child. And she was from the enemy's tribe. Now imagine going out in the middle of a, of a big brawl where everybody is fighting over food and then here's this foreigner that nobody liked. She was taking this huge risk to go try and get the food. And she knows all of these risks and she decides that she's going to do it. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Ruth the Moabite. This is the author trying to remind us, hey, she's a Moabite. This is dangerous. Verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And whose eyes I find favor is basically another way to say whoever is nice enough to share their food and not attack me. And Ruth, she was, she was given a situation that, that she didn't choose. 
She didn't choose for her husband to die and her brother-in-law to die and, and her father-in-law to die. She didn't choose any of it. A shape just kind of fell in front of her, but she chose to do something about it. She chose not to just be depressed and die about it, but she chose to change her perspective and do something about it. Verse three, she went out entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters, meaning she was following them, picking up whatever they fell down. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Of all the fields in Bethlehem, she just happened to enter a field belonging to this man named Boaz. And Boaz just happened to be family of her deceased father-in-law, meaning that he was also family to Naomi, so technically he is family to Ruth. But Ruth doesn't know that at this time. She doesn't find that out until much later. And now we could, we could read this and we can say, wow, what a coincidence. Wow, isn't she so lucky that she happened to find the perfect field on the perfect day? We, we could have that perspective or we could adjust our perspective and, and see God working behind the scenes. Because it just happens to be that, that she stumbles across this field belonging to Boaz. And it just happens to be the day when Boaz, the owner of the field, again, the owners, they, they, they did not work the fields themselves. They had people for that. And Boaz, the same day, just happened to decide that he's going to go check on his field. And while he's out there, he happens to see Ruth and happens to ask, who, who is this woman? And so he starts talking. To, to his people about it, and he learns that Ruth is part of Naomi's clan, which is part of family. So now he begins to understand his relationship to her. He still doesn't tell her that, and he walks up to Ruth and starts talking to her. And during this conversation, Boaz blesses Ruth. He lets her eat and drink, and then he gives orders for all of his men to, to care and protect for Ruth. Nobody could lay a hand on her and they needed to let her gather food. And this is a good deal for Ruth. Ruth risked her life to go out onto the fields to begin with, just so happened to choose the right field and just so happens to find this field owner that is nice to her. And again, we could say, wow, Ruth is lucky. Or we could choose to see the perspective of, wow, God is so good working behind the scenes. And then Ruth travels back home and she tells Naomi about what happens. Chapter two, verse 20. Naomi says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added that man, talking about Boaz, is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Two things here. Notice the change in Naomi's perspective from woe is me to how great is God. Second, this, this concept about a guardian re redeemer, this is another one of those things that, that we don't have in today's world, but it's similar to like an executor of an estate or a power of attorney in our legal system. A guardian redeemer was, was a family member that would be called upon to, to handle aspects of the estate, especially when someone dies. And so just like an executor, a guardian redeemer could be called on to, to buy back 
back land that belonged to somebody, or if one of their family members became a slave, they could come buy them back and set them free. Or, or if one of their family members was killed, if they were murdered, they now had the legal obligation and, and right to go avenge that death. Or they, they could become a lawyer or a witness in a trial. So they had all of this legal authority. And so this is Boaz. And again, my point with all of this is this coincidence of the fact that she just happens to stumble across the perfect field owning to the perfect man who, who saw favor upon Ruth, who happens to be a guardian redeemer to protect her. And Naomi's perspective in this moment, this widow begins to change. And then Naomi creates this elaborate but a bit risque, we don't have any kids in the room, right? Plan in chapter three, starting in verse one. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked is a relative of ours. Now, listen to these instructions. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash Put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Talk about a little risque, right? And Ruth, she agrees to the plan. She gets all dressed up and she goes to the threshing floor where, where Boaz is. She waits in the dark for him to eat and to drink and then he falls asleep and then she approaches him and then she uncovers his feet, which then wakes him up. And at this moment, you're starting to wonder where in the world is this story going? And then it says in verse nine, as she wakes him up, verse nine, who are you, Boaz asked? Ruth says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, now pause really quick. Naomi's instructions to Ruth were very clear. Ruth was supposed to uncover his feet and then do exactly whatever Boaz instructed Ruth to do which again, we could get a little risque of, of where this could possibly go, but Ruth decides not to do that. Instead, she talks to Boaz and she tells Boaz what to do. She tells Boaz, you spread your garments over me. And that phrase or, or what they're doing right there is, is, again, it's one of these things that we don't use this language in our time frame. But what she was doing was she was proposing to Boaz. This was a marriage proposal. She was asking Boaz to marry her, like, like pull your garment over me, offer protection and care for me as a guardian redeemer. She is asking Boaz to marry her. Ruth is daring Ruth is bold and she is willing to take risks. She risked everything to go to the fields. And then she, she followed Naomi's instructions of getting herself all, all pretty and, and going down to this place that could potentially be risky because this guy Boaz has been eating and drinking and who knows what could happen to a drunk man when he is in there and you approach him and uncover his feet. It was all risky. And then she was bold enough to go a step further and give Boaz 
orders rather than wait for him to tell her what to do. And as I'm reading this story, I I, I have to wonder, what is Ruth's relationship to God? At this time, like she grew up in a foreign country that did not worship God. They had, they had other gods that they worshiped. And in chapter one earlier, when she pledges her life to Ruth, her phrasing, which I know we didn't read, but her phrasing is, is I will go where you go, Ruth, or Naomi, and I will worship your gods. It says your God will be my God. And so now she, she, she begins to state that, that sure, I'll worship your God, but I wonder how, how real is that? How much does she actually know of the one true God of, of Yahweh? And she's been with Naomi for 10 years and it took Naomi leaving before she was willing to commit herself potentially to this God. And so I, I have to wonder what is Ruth's relationship to God? What did Ruth know about God? And I can't help but wonder if, if Ruth probably had a pretty bad taste of who God was because Naomi blamed God for all of the death that happened. And so why would you want to worship a God that would be responsible for killing your own husband, your brothers, and your father-in-law. And I do, again, I don't know what Ruth's relationship with God is, but, but I don't have to think it's a stretch to assume that he probably or she probably wasn't fond of God. Or at least maybe she was still believing in many different gods and, and maybe she's beginning to think that God, this Yahweh character, is probably the God of death and destruction and, and there's another God of love somewhere else. And, and this was Naomi's God, and really the only way that Ruth would know about this God is through Naomi. And Naomi, who had been depressed and blaming God for everything, Ruth now learns everything about God through Naomi. And my point with this is that that people often get to know God, get to know Jesus through us, through our faith. And so if a shape falls in front of us and if we blame God and we curse God and we say, God, how dare you? I I don't understand why you would do this. And we get so upset and angry with God because of what happened in our life. And we begin to blame him and other people see us blaming God and being depressed. What are they going to think about Jesus? They are going to think that God is some crazy lunatic who just does torturous things because he thinks it's fun. We can't control what things happen in life. But what we can control is our perspective and how we respond to that. If we choose to have a negative perspective and respond in a sour way, then that is what people learn about God and about Jesus. But if we choose to praise God through all things, to to share his love with one another, then people begin to see the love of Christ through us. And I wonder, as, as I was reading this, it hit me kind of hard. I, I began thinking about, wow, I wonder what people learn about Jesus through my life. And since I had to wrestle with that question, I'm going to ask you that question. If people look at your life, what do they learn about God? If they look at your perspective, your response, the way that you live, the things that you do, what do people learn about Jesus through you? 
Going back to the story, Ruth proposes to Boaz. Boaz accepts the proposal. However, Boaz says, there's a small problem. Yes, I will marry you. However, there happens to be another relative who just happens to be coming into town tomorrow, apparently. And he, he's closely or more closer related to you than I am. And therefore, he actually has first dibs at you in the field and, and all of this stuff. So, so Boaz is telling Ruth, yes, I accept your marriage proposal. However, I have to figure this out first. There's one kink in the plan that I need to work out. So then Boaz creates this master plan to get Ruth and Naomi, and apparently they own land, which we don't find out until this point in the story, but apparently there is land that they own. So he has this crazy master plan where he gathers the next day, he gathers all these townspeople, all the important people, and creates like this trial system. And he invites this this man, Mr. X, we could call him because we have no idea what his name is, but this other family member, this other guardian redeemer, he invites them in for this trial thing. And, and he says to him, he, he says to this family member, he says, you can have the land, which means you also get Naomi. However, I'm keeping Ruth. So he gives this proposal of, hey, you can have the land, you can have Naomi, but I'm keeping Ruth. Now again, Naomi is a cursed widow. Everybody knew it. Nobody wanted to touch her. And by her, by Boaz keeping Ruth, again, who nobody would want anyway, this is also rather genius because according to their law, if Boaz and Ruth have a kid, that kid immediately inherits the land, even if this other family member takes it over. So it's genius because, of course, this guy knows that, okay, well, I mean, if you have a kid, then all of a sudden I lose it. So why would I take this deal? And so the guy backs out. He says, I I can't do that. I can't afford for it to be taken away from me. And so he wins. In chapter 4, verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Let me put all of this into perspective. Naomi had a really rough life, at least for the last 10 years of her life. She she was this poor woman widow. She was too old to be able to find a man herself. She she was too old to find anybody to care for her. There was not much hope left for Naomi. Then we have Ruth, an outsider, a foreigner, again, another widow who couldn't have children that nobody would want to touch. Who, who would want to touch this outsider? She is now this, this outcast. So the two of them are left like, what are we going to do but die, basically? But God was with them through the entire time. And we see here at the end that God restores Naomi through Boaz and Ruth and their son. 
And God welcomes Ruth, the outsider, into the family line of David, which is crazy to think about that, about this, this guy, David, who's going to be this great Israelite leader one day. He is a descendant of, of, of a foreigner, basically, and God welcomes them in. And it's also interesting to see this, throughout this story, these four chapters, God only acts once in this story. And the way that he acts in this story is to allow Ruth to have a child. But we know that God is working through the scenes or behind the scenes through this entire thing. And so here's what we learn from this. First, God is always with us. Sometimes he's working behind the scenes and sometimes it's really obvious when he, when he is working. It's right there that, whoa, look at God, you, you're on display, you are working, but other times it's behind the scenes. Second, we, we cannot always control the things that happen in life, the shapes that fall in front of us. But what we can control is our perspective and our response to whatever happens. And third, how we live our life actually does matter. It matters because it's, it's through our life that people experience Jesus. It is through our responses, through our perspectives that, that people begin to see who Jesus is. It's through our faith that we have in God that people begin to see who he really is. We are called to be and share the gospel because we know that Jesus uses us to make his love known throughout the entire world. And this story of Ruth shows us that God cares about all people. He cares about widows. He cares about the poor. He cares about the outsiders, the foreigners, those that nobody would want to interact with, which is the same thing that we see Jesus do in his ministry as he went to the sick rather than the healthy. Life will give us good and happy things sometimes, and it will also give us really hard things sometimes. We cannot control what actually happens, but we can control our perspective and our response. So this morning, I want to ask you, what is your perspective? How is your faith in God throughout everything, whether he's working behind the scenes or he's right there in front of you? What is your perspective on, on the things that are going on in your life, both good and bad? How are you responding to those things? Is your response good? Or does your response, your perspective need to adjust a little bit? Do you need to stop looking at just the circle in front of you and realize that there's an entire cylinder behind the circle? We can't control the things that happen in life, but we can control our perspective and our response. And so as we close out this service today, I want us to sing one song. And in this moment, I want you to choose how you respond. You, you can sing along with the words on the screen. You can just listen to the words and, and allow that to be your prayer this morning. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel at the altars. This morning, I'm asking you to, to choose faith, to have a perspective that is, that is willing to take risks to do what God's will is.
I'm asking you to be willing to sing hallelujah and praise God no matter what you are going through. Pray with me. Father, we want to sing hallelujah to you. Give us the strength to change our perspective, to see things in a new way. Father, I ask that you change your heart to break for what breaks yours. Father, give us the the new direction, the new perspective. We need to see you at work. Father, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love to continue the conversation and connect with you. Comment, like, subscribe, follow us on the socials at rnaschurch or our website, rnaz.church.